uh, today's message is on Acts 5, the first 11 verses. It, uh, the Bible passage describes the occasion where two people, Ananias and his wife, Sapphira, had sold a piece of property and brought the proceeds and laid it at the apostles' feet for them to distribute to all the other believers or whoever else uh, was in need, and just as had been previously done. However, unlike the previous generous owners, donors, they saw fit to withhold some of the proceeds of that sale to keep for themselves and present the remainder to the apostles as the entire amount. And then they dropped dead. And these are new Christians, mind you, but they dropped dead like immediately once Peter confronted them in their little scheme to lie and test the spirit. Up until this passage, the growing community of early Christians was otherwise described as this utopia of beautiful, harmonious communal living. Um, all the believers were in one heart and mind, the verses say. No one claimed ownership of their possessions and shared everything they had. And so we'll read. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife, Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young man came forward, wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. And so I'll pause right there on the slides. So this passage, I was going to say, uh, seems out of place with the overall flow of Acts chronicling the beginnings of the early church after the death and resurrection of Christ. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira did not appear before this passage, nor are they ever mentioned elsewhere in the Bible. And it does not necessarily advance the biblical canon of Christ's coming. What is more, uh, even more surprising when we look closely at what specifically occurred for their, son, for their sin of lying and testing the Holy Spirit, they received a swift and abrupt death. Lying and deception as sins to us uh, do not seem so harsh and extreme as to warrant the ultimate extreme punishment of death. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira did not even appear to have been afforded a chance to rectify the situation. Even in the Old Testament, if someone cheated or defrauded another, even Leviticus 6 allows for restitution through a guilt offering. I think you had to pay that person the full amount of the value of that, plus 20%, plus the same amount as a guilt offering to the Levites. So my point is there was some way that you could reconcile that before God and 
the fellow Israelites. Even in the New Testament, uh, Matthew 18, as some of us were recently reminded, provides for if you have a disagreement with a brother, what does the Bible say as far as take confront that person if they disagree, bring another, and so on and so forth. But my point is scripture even allows in the Old Testament and also for us today as far as is there a process by which we can kind of restore each other. And yet we see this disproportionate punishment levied without recourse. And that's in tension with what the Bible provides and with what our own kind of modern day sense of justness and fairness uh, calls for. And so we kind of struggle with that as far as what that passage, passage says and do we draw absolute conclusions about that. And I think in terms of why it's significant in that passage about what happened uh, is because God needed to demonstrate his power and authority, even though that rubs up against what we think would be so-called fair or justness, but, but rather God needed to act in order to demonstrate his authority and power. There are two key verses in this passage that I feel uh, definitely explains why God had to provide that passage, because it does seem out of place why that's in there. We'll get to those two crucial uh, verses in just a little while. But to begin with, we first look at, all right, the transgressions of Ananias, uh, Ananias specifically. He was willing to sell off his property uh, for the sake of the, fellow, the gathering of fellow believers in this great kind of beautiful place where everyone was not not in need. If they were, people were giving up their possessions and people as they needed were provided for. And it was this beautiful thing. However, and it's reasonable and prudent for you to think it's in your human nature. Well, I'm going to sell this all, but I'm going to keep a little bit for myself and my wife, just in case this doesn't work out, we'll be able to have something to survive on. That somewhat makes sense. However, their election to lie to Peter and to the Holy Spirit, to God, and test the Spirit, and test God, was their downfall. And they didn't need to have done that. But when they lied, was it because they were embarrassed and they didn't want to say, oh, this, we kept a little bit, bit back for themselves. Does that demonstrate a, a lack of faith or trust in the Lord to provide? Or they wanted to, because of their pride, they wanted to show everyone, look, we sold this and we're given the entire amount. But because of that deception, God took action. And so we find that uh, that type of harsh penalty was important in this new era of believers because in the new church, we take it for granted as far as God's presence and God's authority and might. But in the, in the, new, in the new beginnings of the church in Acts, people were starting to gather and church is kind of referred to as church in that passage for the first time. People were starting to gather, and God's authority, as Luke writes in that passage, is important for Luke, as the author of this passage, to establish God's authority is here, recognizing, and not only his authority, but we have a supernatural act that's occurring before for all to see, the believers and people in the area. And so it was important to establish the kind of deity and supernatural authority of God's presence in and among and how he ruled over them. Whether you disagree with the way in which that was done, that was key. If not, they're just a 
social club. Uh, in today's society, the Kiwanis Club or the Moose Elk Lodge Club is just a social gathering of like-minded individuals. However, because of the early church who believes in a supernatural deity, God definitely established that he was alive and well and uh, reigning and ruling over their lives. And so it was important in that respect that even though Ananias and Sapphira uh, paid dearly for their lying and deception, that it was important for that passage to be included in, uh, in Acts 5 in order to establish God's authority. We also see that Ananias kind of gave into temptation. Now, temptation is a sin. Uh, temptation and sin are, are topics wholly unto themselves, but we'll just touch briefly on them to the extent that uh, this passage states that Ananias allowed Satan into his heart and that both he and Sephora lied or tested the spirit. Now, these are new Christians, so it's hard to gauge their spiritual maturity. But regardless, I think it's safe to say that no one is beyond being tempted. It then becomes a matter of, are you going to kind of give in to that temptation or not? Uh, what passage came to mind, and it happened to be from James 1 that was not prearranged, is the passage on being tempted, and it reads as follows. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Now, if you see the sequence and progression of how that desire turned into sin, which gave birth to death, it follows exactly as far as what Ananias did and how he came into that kind of lying deception. I'm pretty sure when they joined the church and there was this joyous occasion and all praise and glory to God, they had no intention of later on lying about their possessions or lying to the spirit. But certainly their desire to keep some money for themselves in case things didn't work out or, or lying because they were embarrassed or because of their pride, they wanted to be full of themselves as far as appearing to everyone as donating their entire full amount, whatever it was, that desire crept in. And that desire, when conceived, led to sin. And sin, as, as it was full grown, that caused them to lie, that led to literal death. Now, I don't ever read that passage as to literal death because who among us would be alive if we sinned and then immediately fell down? So I think that's important for the purpose of this passage that we refrain from drawing those immediate conclusions. And by the way, when I um, last preached in July, it was on the passage in First Thessalonica and Paul was going to the Greeks and spreading the gospel message for the first time. And he was talking about how it was important for him to have integrity and no hidden agenda or any other devious plans to try to trick them into believing, but rather he represented it with integrity. And so the message itself would be received uh, with integrity and with greater credibility. And part of that message included what I learned in seminary is the, the rule of three G's which goes as a, as a pastor or even lay leadership. Uh, it goes 
Don't touch the gold. Don't touch the girls or the guys. And don't touch the glory. And by that, it's don't touch the gold. Uh, pastors or lay leaders are put in positions of trust. And it's important that they're very good stewards of the church finances. People are giving that they're very careful about that. There shouldn't be any misappropriation or any malfeasance with that. Obviously, with the don't touch the girls or the guys, I think that pastors or even congregation members can be very vulnerable and can fall into that type of trap as far as don't touch the glory. And I think that probably applies to Ananias and Sapphira as far as when you do something in the ministry or giving it for God, all praise and glory to God who allows you to be part of that ministry rather than focusing on yourself about what you're doing. And so I think there's a very subtle but very, very important distinction to make as far as if you start to draw attention to yourself, quote, for the glory of God, then I think you will find that you have probably doomed the ministry because it's just the beginning of the end. So that was important to bring up. Uh, it brings up the next area of this message, and that's the topic of biblical interpretation. We can view passages such as this one as part of a greater narrative of God's actions as he's working through the ages. Uh, this type of biblical interpretation was referenced in Michael Mao's sermon he gave. It happened to be February 13th. And I remember it very distinctly because that was the first time I had ever heard anyone since seminary 10 years ago mention this idea of the biblical interpretation of the Bible as the missio dei, the mission of God, which is construed as this kind of grand meta narrative of how God was working through the ages. First in Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and there's creation of man, the fall of man, the great flood, the starting of multiplication of, of people, the calling out of obscure individuals, Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob, the 12 tribes, the chosen people, the Israelites let out from slavery, and then the Messiah who was uh, prophesied from the Old Testament. And so that is God working through the ages, regardless of how he acted or in the manner in which he acted. That type of approach for me is quite liberating and it's quite revelatory to me. And I, I don't know if it's considered mainstream now, but for me, it uh, helps me greatly personally, just as far as seeing how the Bible as a mission of God is chronicling how God worked through the ages. So we don't necessarily say, well, God did that. I'm going to do that. That's just how God was acting then for those people, his chosen people. He gave them the law. And now what is Christ saying now? And so it causes us to refrain from saying, well, I like that part of the Bible or this part of the Bible. But just appreciating God's power and authority and might as he acted through the ages. And it concludes in the Christ coming as the ultimate fulfillment of his mission. This also includes, okay, sorry about the, um, the messy slide, but that part B, the Christotelic. Michael didn't mention that specifically, but, in, but he mentioned as much as far as all scripture, including that of the Old Testament, points to Christ, meaning that, as I was saying, as God was working through the ages, everything culminates with the coming of the Messiah. 
And so you can look at certain passages uh, as they point to Christ, either through the actual prophecies or just because of what is happening at the time, it foreshadows the coming of God, God's Messiah as he intended. The reason why this matters in the context of this passage is that we see the manifestation of God's eternal might and authority. Um, I struggled with this passage in preparation for this message because I was all, always able to acknowledge the brutal kind of violent acts that were carried out under God's command in the Old Testament, the way that was manifested in many harsh instances. And I would contrast that with God's message of Christ's love in the New Testament. And so, uh, for example, in the book of Joshua, Joshua leads the Israelites in, finally into the promised land of Canaan. After 40 years in the wilderness, Joshua is the one who was able to lead them. And so they lay siege to the first city, Jericho. And if you know that passage of elaborate ritual and, and ceremonial actions, they eventually the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. However, you will see that in Joshua 6, verse 21, they devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. So please notice that these men, women, and children that were annihilated through no fault of their own, all, through no fault of their own, along with the cattle, sheep, and donkeys, were all originally God's creation. They just weren't the chosen Israelites. And not only that, these Canaanites were suddenly unwelcome inhabitants in what was now someone else's promised land. And so we see how God acted in that. And, it, and like I said, our modern day sense of what is just and fair, uh, it, it tends to contrast with that. One final other example of what would otherwise seem as a harmless act, which resulted in the person being struck down by God was in 1 Chronicles 13. We see that King David has possession of the Ark of the Covenant, which is this magnificent, elaborate, sacred Ark of gold that is literally the presence of God. And during the time that they were carrying that, we see in Chronicles 13, verses 9 and 10, when they came to the threshing floor of Kedon, Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the ark because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah. He struck him down because he had put his hand on the ark. So he died there before God. Uh, as an aside, there was a professor at our seminary. His name's, last name is Lamb. For a, for a seminary professor, that's a pretty cool name to have, Professor Lamb. But he wrote a book about some of these peculiar passages in the Old Testament to try to give them greater context and explanation. And he was saying that because the Ark of the Covenant was so sacred and magnificent, it was supposed to be carried by, by uh, high priest Levites. And to put that on an Ark on a, on a oxen, uh, the cart with the, pulled by the oxen, it was the equivalent of just throwing the Ark of the Covenant in the back of a Chevy pickup. It was such a dishonoring disgrace in God's eyes that uh, it burned against Utsa. But anyway, those are two illustrations of God's wrath from the Old Testament. 
And like I was saying, I was always quick to state that, well, God acted this way in the Old Testament. God's wrath manifests ways in many brutal and violent acts, but we are just as sinful and unworthy as they were, but because of Christ, we are spared of that wrath and receive God. we receive God's grace and forgiveness. But here we have Ananias and Sapphira in the New Age, fresh off the very death and resurrection of Christ that should have spared them and spares us from God's wrath. So I really struggled with that as far as, well, those two things con conflict as far as what I was saying as the Old Testament, but in the age of Christ, we are spared from God's wrath. But what finally kind of dawned on me and gave me great peace is that I wasn't even following what the, what the approach of the Missio Dei calls for. And that, uh, that is, I was drawing my own conclusions as far as God acted this way because we did not have one to stand on our behalf, which was Christ, which he, in his great plan, was to provide. But I had made that kind of rule in my mind, and then it caused me conflict, internal conflict in my mind when I should have just, as I've been stating with Amissio Day, just see in kind of awe and wonderment and great reverence as far as this is what God did with his people at the time, and this is what he's doing now because of Christ. But whatever God does is righteous. We don't have a right to judge God by our standards. God is the great I am. We do not have the right to judge God or to say whether or not he is so-called righteous or not. Whatever God does is righteous. For example, unlike President, former President Nixon and a recent former president, um, President Nixon infamously said in this interview in 1977, which was about three years after he resigned in disgrace because he was about to be impeached and convicted in the Senate because of the Watergate, which was in part uh, alluding to a lot of other illegal activities they was conducting. But in this infamous uh, interview that he finally provided, uh, David Frost, the interviewer, was kind of pressing him as far as, do you think that your presidential powers are so plenary and broad that a president could might even commit what would otherwise be construed as an illegal act. And President Nixon famously, infamously said, well, if a president does it, then it's not illegal. We don't have the right to say that as far as what God has done. Whatever God does is righteous. What is Whatever happens in this life compared to what God gave us through his son, salvation, and an eternal life with him in heaven. And so when I see all of these things happening on this earth, which, you know, First John tells us that we are children of God and that the whole world is controlled by the evil one. There's a lot of things that are so messed up. Good things happen. Bad things happen to good people. Good things happen to bad people. But who am I to judge whether or not God's might is righteous or not, but rather he has given us the greatest gift. And so as I think the Missio Dei in that respect liberates me from trying to pluck out certain excerpts and judge them according to my own set of values or standards rather than just being in awe of what God did and being grateful because of Christ.
that I do have a, a place at the table. We also see glimpses of how Christ's coming was fulfilled from earlier scripture. This is the aspect of the Missio Dei uh, approach to the Bible that holds all scripture points to or culminates in Christ. It's that phrase, the um, Christotelic aspect of that. And so I think it's important to point that out. There's an Old Testament verse in Samuel 2.25. If a man sins against another man, God may mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who, who will intercede for him? I'm very grateful that uh, once you have the training in the Missio Dei and our seminary really, really emphasize that, they, over the pandemic, renamed themselves and the name of that seminary is Missio. So that tells you all you need to know as far as how that was emphasized a lot. But I do appreciate that so much because when you have that, that type of teaching or training, all these little verses pop out. I've never shared that in the last 10 years since I've seen that, but it's just like that gets me kind of excited in a Bible geeky kind of way, but I'm sharing it with you because when we talk about how that verse may point, I saw that in the verse in this chapter five, when Peter tells Ananias, what made you think of doing such a thing? You have not, you have not lied to men, but to God. And so that talks about in the first Samuel that there was no one there to step in when you sinned against God, but who do we have now? Now, certainly there's a difficulty as far as reconciling that we do have Christ now, but what happened with Ananias? The verses are silent between verse three and four when Peter confronted him, whether or not he did ask for forgiveness or, or what have you, but we know that we have that in Christ. And again, we don't get to say, well, you didn't do this here. You're not a just God. It just because God needed to act in that passage to emphasize his points, it was necessary. Part of what is taught about the Bible overall and what you begin to observe is that every book of the Bible essentially furthers the narrative of the biblical canon, meaning each book of the Bible and each chapter serves a purpose of how and why God acted through the ages to fulfill the mission of God. Like I was saying, acting through the ages from Genesis, Exodus, Numbers. For example, there's no book of, uh, I'll pick a random name, Ephraim. There was a man named Ephraim. He was a farmer who owned land. He got married and had three sons who helped them with the wheat harvest every fall. He lived to be 93, then he died, the end. There, there's no point because nothing about this person, Ephraim and his family, advances the biblical canon of what God's mission was to create and then provide a way out for us, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. And so when I was wrestling with why is this Acts 5, 1 through 11 in there, what purpose does that serve? I think it's extremely important because the two crucial verses that I mentioned earlier that I felt were the crux of why the passage was included in the chapter was verses 5 and 11. Both times when Peter confronted Ananias and when he confronted Sapphira and they dropped dead, great fear seized all who heard what had happened. 
Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. So in that sense, I, I strongly feel the purpose of this was one to establish his early authority over this new church for all to see from within and from without. And in a supernatural way, he is establishing his authority, but also fear of the Lord can be actually vital for us. Fear of the Lord leads to wisdom occurs in the Old Testament seven to eight times. I think uh, for me, what it says is as far as fear, but having great reverence for God Almighty to be humble and not arrogant or prideful. Uh, the verse in Micah, to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God comes to mind. That humility flows from fear of the Lord and it allows for knowledge and wisdom, pride and arrogance in the absence of that fear uh, do not. And so two examples of, of the Old Testament of what I was talking about, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts have good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. In Isaiah, he will be the sure foundation for your time, a rich store for salvation and wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. So I think it's important that we acknowledge that although we don't like the word fear, you need to have a healthy reverence for what God is capable of, but because of the grace afforded us through Christ's death and resurrection and his finished work on the cross, we have comfort in the safe harbor of his salvation. Um, I prefer reverence because if you're terrified, if a bear's charging and you're terrified, you're not really able to acquire knowledge and wisdom if you're terrified. So I think that's important. Um, quick little kind of funny story about my testimony is that it took me about uh, four decades. I was 40 in, in seminary when it, God kind of revealed to me, hey, you have some pretty serious deep-seated issues about being an adopted Korean. And so how am I going to be able to place people in your care if you don't like clear the deck? So that began this long journey. I'm not going to bog you down with too many details that kind of take away from this sermon message. But for example, uh, that type of kind of subconscious anger issue was really severely impacting my relationship with my son, Julian, who's in college now. But when he was a little tyke, when he was like five or six, you know, in my mind, it's like, I'm going to teach him a good work ethic and discipline. And, you know, I would try to start out, Julian, let's, let's, uh, I'm going to teach you how to tie your shoes. And we'd start out and be trying to be fun. And then, no, that's wrong. Do that right. Do this again. And, you know, and he would just get so stressed out to a time where like a couple of times later, I'm like, Julian, let's try to, let's try to learn how to tie your shoes. And he'd already start shaking and he would start crying. It's like that really kind of destroyed me. And for the record, I never physically or psychologically abused him, but in my mind, I was just trying to give him discipline and work ethic when really I was crushing him. He's five or six. And so there's a fine line as far as what we're doing to our children with good intentions, but what is the actual result? But I would say the only 
positive thing and what I was talking about having reverence for the Lord, the only good thing about from my bad daddy years is that he still has this little tiny ounce of fear of dad because of what he may have experienced in the past. And I, I hope he's no longer traumatized by that. I, I put a lot of effort to try to love him and show them how I care in ways that are not as harsh as that. But um, I would say that if I am harsh now, it's, it's a good routine garden variety parenting harsh, but uh, perhaps he would disagree. A couple years after I realized that I needed to do better as far as my parenting um, approach, we had, our, we had always said nightly prayers up until, yeah, actually it was 16, but a few years after this revelation for me, when we were saying nightly prayers, you know, we would say the Lord's prayer and then I would just continue to pray, Lord, I hope Julian's going to make new friends at this new school year, or he has good teachers. And I would sometimes say, and I pray that I was a better daddy yesterday than I was. I, I prayed that I was a better daddy today than I was yesterday. And I pray I was a better daddy. And he stopped me interrupting me, wait, you weren't a better daddy today than you were yesterday. And so I think I had yelled at him earlier in the day. So he was correcting me in the middle of that prayer to, to let me know. So I guess it's a good thing that um, he was paying attention to what I was praying. And finally, in the um, in terms of fear of the Lord, we also ha have echoes of this theme of fear of the Lord in the New Testament. In the first chapter of Luke, an angel comes to Mary to tell her she is highly favored by the Lord and that she will bear a child, the Son of God. She is overwhelmed with joy and blessing and rejoices in song. And she says in part, and Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. And this is the key passage that I saw in verse 50. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. And so I think not only in the Old Testament, as far as fear of the Lord leading to wisdom, we also have God's mercy extending to those who fear him. So there's a lot of positives to this idea about fear. We don't like to be afraid. We don't like the feelings of fear. Ananias and Sapphira's lack of fear or reverence for God was indeed unwise. Whether they lacked faith and trust in God to provide or they were prideful and wanting to just let everyone think that they contributed all the uh, property funds, God was watching. And so even in the new way to a right relationship with God as through Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior, God nonetheless demonstrates his power and might over us. And he has full power and authority to do that. And so we can walk humbly with great reverence from the Lord. And from that, we see that our spiritual maturation, because we'll be learning more about God's works, we'll be more grateful. We'll have a greater gratitude for what Lord, 
what God has provided through Christ, through our fellowship with one another, through our relationships, one another. To be humbled is to go from bad daddy years to better daddy years. For me, I don't know what that means to each and every one of you, but if you are so set in your ways, and the worship team can come up, we're, I'm just finishing. But if you're so set in your ways in pride, in the absence of actual reverence for the Lord, I don't know that you'll ever have the growth that you may be seeking. And I hope that you are seeking that because that's not only better for your relationship with God, but we are blessed because of your maturation and because you are of your anchor of your faith in God and how that expresses itself and manifests itself in fellowship and in your ministries. And so we have a lot to be thankful for in the mission of day and mission of God, seeing how God can act so terrifyingly but so beautifully and poignantly because he loved this world and he loved his only son, he gave his son for us. And so in that backdrop, in that context, can we be so grateful and have a certain humility that adds to wisdom, that adds knowledge? And I think that that's our challenge for us to always be humble, walking in the Lord in ministry and in life. How are we witnessing that to the world who see us? Or are we arrogant and judgmental or haughty about our Christian identity? So I think we need to be very careful about how inward, how internally we are acting and how that expresses itself out to one another and to the world. And so that is our challenge. So let's pray. Lord God, uh, we thank you and praise you for this beautiful day. We thank you for those who are gathered here and those who are praising you at the retreat. Lord God, we're all striving forward to worship you and draw closer to you. I praise you for the opportunities that we have. I pray that, Holy Spirit, you will resonate in our hearts and minds. I pray for a sense of fear or reverence and awe, Lord God, of your true might, but that you certainly spare us your wrath because of your son. And so we are deserving of that, but may we just be so relieved and finding comfort in the safe harbor that you provide through your son, that we will be bold and there will be a conviction in our hearts and minds that we will act in the way that you call us to do in your perfect timing, that your will and purpose in our lives will be realized. So we thank you in all these things in your son's name. Amen.